Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey, look, we're kicking off uh, week number two in our series, Bold New World. So just to give a kind of recap of where we were from last week, this is for obviously those, this is your home church, or if this is your first time, not only to our church, maybe your first time to church ever, or maybe it's a New Year's resolution of yours to like, I want to be in church, or I want to explore faith, or maybe re-explore faith. Last week, um, we wanted to look at this conversation around the world being new, because you don't need me to tell you this thing's a different and we're all trying to figure our way to navigate and maybe you've had you had plans last year and your plans were thrown out the window I know I uh, last year gained two uh, new brother-in-laws and it's amazing I got to attend uh, one wedding in person and the other wedding I got to watch via zoom so that was a great experience so, well it's just new and it's different and the reason we want to talk about approaching it boldly is because I don't like the other alternate alternative right I don't want to approach life. I don't think faith in Jesus leads us to face life timid or fearful or worried. So, so what we did last week, we looked at this idea with so many things perhaps uh, out of our control um, and you know, beyond our means to make you know, permanent decisions about things, or maybe you've got plans for your life and they're always tentative because we're not sure what can happen. We looked at this idea of what it means to have a, a lack of control in our lives, particularly, particularly because, and I'm sure you've learned this uh, over the past 12 months, is we actually have a deep emotional need for control. And that's not always a bad thing. And, and we looked at this last week. There are indeed many positive things that control, uh, you know, control. There are good measures of control. For example, a budget for your finance, that's a good measure of control. Without a budget, your finances usually get out of control, right? Same with like boundaries for your children. You've ever seen a child without boundaries? We say that child's got an out of Control, very. You guys are so good feedback. Um, online, I know you guys were super loud. So, but anyways, um, but but the same token, beyond the things we can control, there is. It's like there's this emotional need inside of us where where we we we, we want to know because if we know, then we can control. Like this kind of deep seated need to control, and often, particularly when we experience a world or an environment where we seem to be losing control or a world that seems to be flying out of control, we often turn to God. I'm like, God, can you help us? But we looked at this, and this might not seem encouraging at first, but last week we looked at this idea that God actually doesn't promise us something to control. And when we turn to faith in Christ and when we look to God for hope, what He promises is not something to control. What God promises us is something to hold on to. And this is where we sat last week. He doesn't prompt, nowhere do we see through Scripture, through what Jesus taught or showed. And for anyone who's experienced life following Christ, He doesn't promise you and I control, but He does promise us something to hold on to. And so whilst we might not always be have, have a grasp on the present and the moment and everything, God does offer us hope and also He offers us vision. And so whilst control often has a lot to do with the moment and the present and us wanting to get a handle on how things are, we don't always have that. We're not promised that, but God does promise us vision. And as you'll find, the more you follow Jesus, the more you learn to put your trust in Jesus, the more you learn that, the, and this is what we looked at last week, the present moment is not always king. And your life doesn't have to always be dictated by what is happening in the moment. And the more you follow Jesus, the more you realize your life will be filled with a sense of hope and optimism and courage for the future. 
So we looked at that last week and we looked at it by studying the life of Abraham in the book, first book of the Bible, Genesis, and how uh, he experienced so much of the promise of God in his life, even though he was, lived a life of uncertainty, he was a foreigner, he lived in tents. Can you, okay, anyway, imagine living in a tent, right? Some of you have gone camping in a tent and you would say hand on heart that one night is more than enough, right? Everyone's going, yes, yes. But your spouse is saying, no, don't say that. Um, The point is, Abraham, whilst he had so much that was out of his control, he couldn't even set down roots in an area to build a house. But yet yet he found something incredible to hold onto as his faith in God. And so, so looking through that last week, our conclusion was this. You got a what we drew, what we drew an example, uh, a conclusion was from Abraham is that you live in your tent, meaning you can't change everything about the moment, you can't control everything. So you might as well make the most of the tent you're in. And instead of spending 2021 just upset about how things are or aren't, and, and as much as we are upset, and much as there's frustration and annoyance. Make the most of the tent you're in. Live it up. Caravans have made a huge revival in the young generation now. And everyone's like beefing them up with like couches and espresso machines and beer kegs. Like they're like these days people are making their tents and their caravans supersized, right? So if you're going to be here, if you're going to live in 2021, you might as well invest into your relationships. You might as well live your best life. Be generous. Be big hearted. Be the guy or the girl that people want to be with while things are out of control. So live in your tent, but also look to the promise. And the, you, you do both, right? You don't live in the promise because that doesn't exist. You trust in the promise of God. You live in the present, but you trust in the promise. So that's where we finished last week. And then I said that today we'll be looking at whilst God doesn't promise anything for us to control, He does encourage us to control one thing. There is one thing that we're actually borderline commanded to control. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this command doesn't extend to you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I would almost be willing to use the word, there's an expectation scripturally for you and I to put this one area of control in our life. Now, whilst we aren't commanded to control anyone or to control anything, we're certainly not promised it. The one thing we are encouraged to control is ourself. And to have self-control. And man, this I am finding, and I'm super challenged by this idea, that more and more, as we are confronted with a world that can seemingly feel out of control, or at least out of our control, or out of your control, certainly out of my control, I can't even control my own kids, you know? Um, yeah, the, the nervous laughter from my wife. <laughs> um, but one thing I can control or one thing I'm encouraged to control, and one thing I think we should control, is ourself. So I figured second Sunday of the year, in lieu of talking about, you know, New Year's resolutions and all those things, we need to talk about what it means to have self-control. And and particularly if you're watching online, or if you're tuning in, if you're someone who wouldn't even consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you don't even need to believe in God for you to recognize there's something about this idea of having self-control that makes a world of difference, at least to our own life, if not to those who we impact. And I think the reason it's more important than ever that we wrestle with the tension of having self-control is what we have been reminded of over the past almost 12 months is how interconnected 
we all are. And I don't mean that on some weird philosophical level. I just mean practically. Like, <laughs> we share spaces. We share resources. Um, we all have to abide by similar laws. We share services. We share germs, right? And that's not always a bad thing. Like, you've been leaning into sharing germs for a long time. I remember growing up, there was such a thing. I'm not sure if parents still do it. We'll find out soon, I guess. But there's such thing as chicken pock parties. Who, sent, who was sent to one of them as a child, right? Who, any parents who you were sent to them? Yeah, you still got the trauma of it, right? This idea, well, one kid's got chicken box, we need to all get them. So my daughter's got a three and a half year old birthday. So, you know, let's go. And so you guys have lent into this whole germ, sharing germs with them. But the point is this, due to our interconnectedness, right? You have a neighbor who lives behind you, next to you, on the other side of you. The reason we have laws so they don't make noise after certain times, because we're all trying to share space Together, we all live in this interconnected world together. And because of that tension, and I'm not trying to sound like a politician here. I'm not trying to sound like a politician here. We need to get along. We need to work together, even when it's annoying. And the reason I bother even saying that <laughs> as your pastor and you know, for us to wrestle with, particularly for the Christians listening, is... Um, we can't avoid this, that Jesus said the primary indicator or dynamic that would identify you to the world as a Jesus follower is not how much Bible you can quote, it's not how many people you pray for and see incredible things happen, as great as that is, the primary thing that would cause your life to stand out as a Jesus follower is how you get along with others. So what were you like on Friday when our beloved premier announced that the lockdown was coming? Were you a nice person at Coles? Now, I kind of say that tongue-in-cheek, but not really, like genuinely speaking. Because I'm convinced as Jesus followers, we should be the leading example of how to get along in community. And as followers of Jesus, we're here from all political backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, nationalities, ages, I love the fact that we have a church community that has the youngest to the oldest all celebrating the hope of Jesus together. I love that about our church. I love the fact that we have a huge divide of worldviews and experiences. I love the fact here that we've had people who saw what happened in America this week going, yeah, and other people go, horrible. I don't know what you've said on that, but I love the fact we have people from all divides here. Like, because as Jesus followers, we, get, we learn to get along with our differences because what is the most primary thing about us is who we put our trust in. Okay, so, so we should be setting this great example to the community around us. Um, and I say that unapologetically. We should be setting the example of what it means to share, to be patient, to have peace when there's a lot of conflict, to be hopeful, to be generous. In other words, this challenge for us to be Jesus followers more than ever before highlights our need to have self-control. Self-control. self control. And before you and I need to get caught up and worrying about how we control those in our world and how we're trying to get control and everything else in our life, let me ask you this. How are you going with controlling yourself? And you might ask the question, I certainly ask the question, what does this have to do with the idea of a bold new world and having vision for our lives and this idea that trusting God causes us to have this huge promise? Well, what I want to do is show one proverb in just a moment. I want you to commit this proverb to memory. And you don't even have to believe in God to see the validity in this proverb. This is written about 3,000 years ago by King Solomon, who's the uh, third king of Israel, the, na the ancient nation of Israel. And 
I know in times where I've been a little maybe lost and not known what to do in many times of my life, and it is something that Chloe and I have lent into before, this verse has helped me so much in a whole lot of different areas of my life. And you would have heard this before a million times, but I think it's a good place for us to begin today. It says this in Proverbs 29 verse 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Now, this word restraint, I don't know what it comes to mind when you think of it. It's not always a positive vibe, right? You don't use the word restraint often positively. It's usually like, I'm feeling restraint. It's its negative connotation. Indeed, no doubt, if you've ever experienced a controlling person before and they've tried to put restraint around you, you'd understand this concept can be negative. But the truth is, there's a whole lot of positives that come with restraint. So there's a whole lot of good things that can be under this label of restraint. And what Solomon's arguing here is where there's no prophetic vision, People will cast off restraint. So why would we want to keep restraint on? Well, if, you've got a, if you're a parent here and you've ever had children in your car, you would know that a seatbelt is a positive restraint, right? It's, the idea is for your good, not for your harm. Thank you, Clinton, on the front row. You joined the chorus of online people who said it out loud as well. You guys are awesome too. Um, so... Um, by the way, you've been charging on with that moustache for a long time. It's very, very impressive. Well beyond November and well before November became a thing, right? Or Movember. Many Movembers, yeah. <laughs> so, so um, but there's other areas as well. Okay, I mentioned it earlier. Okay, a budget, like with your finances. I would argue that is a very, very helpful restraint. It's a restraint on your finances, but not to harm you. It's to bless you. It's to... It's for your good. I, um, if you've ever been, a, say, a musician, you've studied music before, if you've ever encountered someone who gives like copious amounts of hours when they're growing up to, you know, say, learning the piano, when you hear about those incredible musicians who give like eight hours a day to studying, you might look at that and go, what a restraint, that's horrible, that's negative, we're all out socializing and partying, and you're there, practicing, 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 scale, 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 you know, so annoying, Why would, you know, what a restraint, how negative, but if you've ever seen what has come from that restraint of discipline, of consistency, of faithfulness, of hard yakka for a long time, you realize something that a potential that would have stayed untapped and hidden all of a sudden because of the restraint of practice and discipline and self-control, that potential has been unleashed. And this is the idea of self-control. This is the idea of putting on restraint. It unleashes potential. And you and I have these so often untapped potential inside of our life that if you would turn on the tap of self-restraint and self-control and discipline, you will be blown away by the potential that will ooze out of your life. So I want to encourage you today. We can often think in terms of self-control, this negative thing. And you're someone who might not have engaged with faith for a long time thinking this is all about all the things I'm not supposed to do, not do this, not do that. No, no, no. You're looking at it wrong. Because when you totally understand at least the biblical idea of self-control, the heart behind it is that by putting on restraint, by having self-control, it will unleash God-given potential in your life that perhaps would have stayed untapped unless it wasn't for you putting on restraint. Okay, so let me ask about the self-controls that you have in your life right now. Do you think about them? Are you intentional about them? Do you plan for them? Even beyond that, has your faith in God challenged you recently about areas in your life where you need to up the self-control? Self-control. And I'm telling you, it, this, this notion here isn't a modern notion. It isn't just a, um, like a, a super motivational thing. I mean, there's a, there's a deep side to faith when it comes to this idea of self-control. And the reason is, 
the, the passage, if you recall what it said, it says, where there's no prophetic vision, people cast off restraint. Because the vision you have that is causing you to put on restraint is very important. I want you to hear me with this. Like, listen in, okay? If you've got the coffee machine running at home right now, just turn it off for a second. Listen in. Because we're all putting on certain restraints in our lives, whether you know it or not, according to whatever has caught your vision. And if you've, I'll give an example, if your vision of life has come from someone else and you look at someone else's life and that causes you to spend certain amounts of money or live a certain way because you're wanting to keep up with someone else or you're wanting to impress someone else. If someone else is your vision and that's caused you to put certain restraints and habits around your life, we all know where that leads, right? If envy or jealousy or competition or comparison has led you to live certain ways, we all know that's toxic and not going to last. What Solomon says here is where there's no prophetic vision, people will cast off restraint. And this idea of prophetic, this idea is to see things as your heavenly Father sees things. It's for you and I to get a vision of the world, to get a vision of your life, to get a vision of your potential in the same way that your heavenly Father sees you. And when you begin to see the world, not as the media tells you, not as other people tells you, not as your maybe broken emotions or jealousy or envy would tell you, when you begin to see things as your heavenly Father sees things, it radically shapes the way in which you put certain restraints and controls in your life because you begin to believe in the same potential that your heavenly Father believes in, right? So prophetic vision. And I tell you, the first followers of Jesus got this. Those in the first century after Jesus was resurrected, those that saw him resurrected, those who lent into the message and life of Jesus, man, their lives stood out so radically because they started willingly putting around certain habits and behaviors and disciplines and control measures in their life. Not because they felt they were controlled, but because following God started to unleash this hope in their life, unleash this potential in their life, and ultimately it unleashed boldness in their life. In fact, the thing that set apart the first followers of Jesus almost more than anything else, we would often use the term, well, is there faith in God? Surely is there faith that caused them to stand out, you know, in the ancient world in the first century. But it's not just what they believed. Anyone can believe anything and not make a difference. It's how what they believed led them to live a certain way. It caused them to live boldly in the world and it stood out. It caused them to stand up against tyranny and against injustice and begin to love people who are unlovable, begin to show the world that their Heavenly Father looks at them differently than Caesar looked at them, then paganism looks at them, right? They were instilled with this incredible boldness because they began to see not only their own lives, but the world around them, which, mark my words, was way more out of control than what we maybe deem the world is right now. Anyone who's a historian will tell you that, that the world we experience right now is nothing in terms of how things have been historically, but that's for another day. But needless to say, the first followers of Jesus facing the world they faced with tyranny, with disease, with plague, with poverty, they were marked by this radical boldness. It wasn't just what they believed, it's how what they believed caused them to live and was marked by boldness. Which is why I'm convinced that as the world's different and the world can seem a little bit out of our control, I'm convinced that following Jesus will cause us to live in the same way. And I'm telling you, I'm going to double down on this for the next 12 months. I'm convinced that we shouldn't just fall into the tides of anxiety and worry and hopelessness about the world because we have a hope that's greater than governments and greater than economics and greater than a vaccine. Our hope is in the living God who gives us a promise that lasts the ages. And I'm convinced that when we knit our hope to Him, what comes out of your life isn't despair, but it is great boldness. 
So you and I can face the world that we're uncertain about with a sense of courage and vision and optimism and to learn from those who were there at the beginning to have a great boldness. Now, as you can imagine, this is very appealing. Courage is very contagious. And the Christian message took off like wildfire in the first century. In a world where it should have been squashed and snuffed out, it was started in some backwater, unpolitically important region of the Roman Empire. It grew and it grew and it grew. In fact, it grew so much around the world, they eventually started to have to get organized. And so we read a lot of this in the New Testament, how the churches began to figure, you know, there was no New Testament. They were still writing the New Testament. So they had to start appointing leaders in all the local churches. And what I want to do today to explain this idea of the importance of self-control in a world that can seem out of control is I want to look at one particular letter written by an early church leader, Paul, who wrote much of our New Testament. In fact, most of the letters he wrote in our New Testament were addressed to corporate gatherings, to churches. But there was a handful of letters he wrote to individuals. And I want to look at one today where he wrote to a young pastor or young leader of a church named Titus. And he lived in the nation of Crete. And um, so we're going to pick up this. It's a personal letter written to a pastor who led this congregation of Jesus followers in the first century AD. And here's what Paul wrote to him. He says, since an overseer, and it's the same Greek word that we get the term like pastor or bishop. So since an overseer manages, and the same word we get for lead, you can, you can put there. So since an overseer manages or leads God's household, meaning the local church, he must be blameless. He must be blameless. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. And before we jump to the next slide here, I need to pause here for a moment, okay? So you, to give you a little back, you might not be interested in this, and, but it's just worth you knowing kind of context here. Um, in the movement we're a part of at the church, we have like this two-year probationary period for pastors, those who step up to be an overseer of a local church and all different levels. So if you're like, want to be a young you know, kids pastor or youth pastor or whatever it might be. So um, I was a youth pastor and young adult type pastor for about 10 years before I took on this role. And so I had like my probationary period before I got like my pastor's license. So I know there's some of you and some of you watching online as well. A lot of people come to a PM service. They had to sit through the years where I had to learn to communicate and learn to lead. And I don't know what horrible sin they committed in some past life for me to be their pastor and trainee, but somehow they survived, right? And they're still around. So at least some of them are around. Woodsy's still around. He was there. That's why he's got the shakes on the front row. <laughs> Um, so so this, is a, this is a crazy list, right? Like, think about it. Oh, okay, must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. So when I was learning to be a pastor, I'm telling you, those first two years, those first few years, they tested me on everything in this list. Everything. In fact, there's one very traumatic moment, Brendan. I'm not sure if you've wiped this from your memory back in the day when you were there. But we began this great initiative called The Cause. Not the band with the sisters and brother. The Cause, C-A-U-S-E. That was an in-joke for those who were there, but none of you were there. Anyways, um, so we thought, look, more than just our gatherings, we should, we should get these young people living for a cause, you know, doing something great for the community because of their faith in Jesus. And so on Saturday mornings, we get, began this idea, let's get together and, and do things like backyard renovations and bless people who maybe are homeless or, or you know, um, are under, in poverty or, you know, maybe a single mom or an elderly couple. Let's just do things to bless them around the home. And it took off like wildfire, didn't it? I remember like we'd have hundreds, over 200 kids. Can you imagine that? 200 teenagers, 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning, pulling out weeds and doing gardening. There's some of you are parents of teenagers going, I can't even get them out of bed, let alone pulling weeds in our own home. This was a move of God. Like this was revival, you know, this is amazing. Um, 
So anyways, it took off. And then it began like we started taking on bigger projects and we started renovating schools, doing all things for schools. But so this one project we got offered was there was a program at one of the local high schools here um, and they had a program for young teenage mums and they wanted to make sure that teenage mums wouldn't get, um, didn't, you know, stop going to school. So they provided a great resource facility for them so um, teenage mums could still attend school whilst their kids would get looked after in daycare. And we were like, that is an awesome initiative as we were a teenage ministry. And so like, how can we help? And they're like, well, it's a new facility. It's very, well, sorry, it's not a new facility. It's an old facility. It's very tired. So we're like, we have many hands and many hands creates. So I thought... So I was like, what, we can't, what can unskilled teenagers do? Paint. This guy was the leader. I do not have a trade in painting. So I didn't think it through entirely. So 250 kids on a Saturday rocked up to make this place look beautiful. And make it beautiful they did. Um, okay. <laughs> Not quick-tempered. Ooh, that one was tested. Because we gave all these kids a paintbrush. You know what color we used? Do you remember? Blue. There was more blue paint on the kids' faces than on the walls. And because this was such a good news story, teenagers doing something great, the news rocked up. I remember being interviewed there, standing there, like deer in headlights, because there are kids running around, throwing paint at each other. The carpet was covered in paint. Like, it was, it was awesome. <laughs> so, overbearing, not quick-tempered man, I was not given to drunkenness. Now, I've never been given to drunkenness, but there were times I was tested. Am I going to get emails for that one? Anyway, not violent. That was certainly tested. Um, anyway, you can understand. So this, is like, this was like the expectation of the pastors, right? Then it goes on. This is what not to do. The very next verse, he then writes this. Rather, rather, a pastor, an overseer, must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In other words, he was saying this. The best way for these leaders of churches to lead is by example. And you knew this already, didn't you? We've all seen leaders who tell but don't do. Like, show us by your example. It's still proven to be the most, certainly a biblical way, it's certainly a way that the early church went into, that those who lead shouldn't just get up there and let me give me a Bible. It's like, if people saw how you lived, would they still listen to what you have to say? Right, so the best way to lead is to lead by example. And, and you might not see yourself in a leadership position, but make no mistake about it, every single one of you are in an influential position. And your life, for good or for bad, is influencing those around you. And influence is, at its core, leadership. So I want to ask you this question. Can you lead yourself? Can you lead yourself? It's just, it's another way of looking at this idea of having self-control. Can you lead yourself? When you're confronted with temptation, do you know how to lead yourself? Do you know where you're leading your life? Do you have a God 
God-given vision for your marriage, for your finances, for your children, for your potential, for your spiritual vitality, for your generosity? Do you have vision? And can you lead yourself? Can you lead yourself? Now, the reason Paul was instructing Titus in this scripture to make sure he was self-controlled wasn't for self-control in its own measure, as much as I'm sure it's a virtue. But the reason he said you must be self-controlled and disciplined was because he was influencing the lives of others. And Paul had a vision and a heart for the Cretans because the Cretans had a reputation. And if you read the book of Titus in your own time, there's a few funny verses in there worth drawing out. But Paul had a vision. He was like, no, God has great potential in a nation of people who the rest of the world had written off. God had not written them off. So he's saying, Titus, I need you to live self-control. I need you to lead by example because those you're leading, we have to see the potential that is on their life realized. It wasn't, he didn't tell him to be self-controlled so that his life could be right with God. It wasn't this idea that you need to live self-controlled to be saved. And it wasn't so that he could be celebrated for being so self-controlled as if self-control was the goal. Let me tell you this, control is not the goal. The goal was this, the goal with self-control is always the fulfillment of potential. And so Paul's like, listen, you're called to lead these people. You're called to influence these people. You're called to be an example of these people. They have so much potential in their life. So I need to make sure you and your life, you have got self-control in place, that you are leading by example, that you're showing people this is possible, that their lives don't have to be out of control. Government can be out of control. Culture can be out of control. But your life does not have to be out of control. There is great God-given potential on your life. Okay, so not only did he instruct it to Titus, the leader of the community, but then he lists down all, he talks about older men, um, older women, younger men, younger women, and to all of them, he reiterates the importance of self-control. But he concludes, and this is so powerful, he concludes this whole encouragement for self-control by saying this, for the grace of God, the grace of God, has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now, we're going to swing back to this in a few minutes as I finish. But I want you to remember this verse. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, okay? So before you think I'm just going to be doing this big motivational thing about get controlled, this is like the clincher. So I want you to remember this verse. But then the next verse, he says this. It teaches us, meaning the grace of God that's been offered to all people. It teaches us to say, say this word with me. It teaches us to say, no. No to ungodliness and worldly passions. And it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. So let me ask you this question. Is there something in your life that you can't say no to? Is there something in your life that you can't say no to? Can we throw that next slide up? Because generally speaking, if there is an area in your life that you can't say no to, it's usually an indication that that area has control of you. If you can't say no to a certain temptation, now I'm not saying we're all, we never fall for it. I'm asking, does something control you? Does something have a grip on your life? Is something controlling you? If you can't say no to something, it's usually an indication that it's controlling you. And I want to encourage you this. Do not hand over the control of your life to something or to someone else. Don't hand over the controls of your life. Refuse to hand over the controls of your life. And the reason I say that is this. Not even God wants to control you. 
Did you know that? God has no interest in controlling your life. God wants to lead you, absolutely. Beyond that, God wants to bless your life. So I want to ask you this. Is there an area that you would be honest and say is out of control in your life? And if there is, have you asked your heavenly Father for help? If there is an area that has gotten out of control, and if you're not sure about that, if there's something in your life that your spouse or your friends have just made passing comments about you before, that's their way of saying to you, it's a little out of control. If your mates have kind of made jokes to you about, oh yeah, another glass of wine before, that's usually them trying to say to you. If they've made nervous jokes about some of the people that you follow on social media and what they post and what you look at, that could be their way of saying, uh, are you, what are you looking at? If they've made passing comments about, man, you're always like, you're always angry, hey, you know? It's, out, it's the people who's close in your life, nice way of trying to say, do you have control of this area? It's just a little warning sign that flashes. So if, that, if there's an area in your life that maybe right now the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on, and again, you don't even need to be a believer in God to recognize there can be areas in your life that are out of control. This might be your introduction to meeting your heavenly father. You can bring those areas of your life to God and say, God, not even you want to control me, but these things are controlling me. Can you help me? And bring it to your heavenly father. It's one of the reasons that we encourage people in connect groups, to be in community, to go beyond just Watching a service or participating in a service, we are a church. We don't just go to church or watch church because we need to be in community that helps to keep each other accountable, to support, to encourage. But that's another word for another day. This is, I want to talk about God just for a moment because what Paul said here, he says, the grace of God has been given to offer salvation to all men. And notice what he says. He says it teaches us. The grace of God teaches us to say No. And I love this because when we turn to God, if there's an area in your life where you need help in, an area in your life you're struggling in, you're like, God, I need your help. This is how the grace of God works. And this is so important to understand. The grace of God doesn't, isn't overbearing on you. The grace of God doesn't force you. The grace of God certainly doesn't guilt you into the areas that maybe you're out of control. The grace of God doesn't shame you. The grace of God doesn't command you. What does the grace of God do? It teaches us. It teaches us. It teaches us how to have self-control, how to say no. Because think about it. Most areas in your life, I certainly know most areas in my life that have caused me most regret and most pain, it's because it's been something that I should have said no to, but I said yes to. What does it mean I was evil? Did it mean I had bad intentions? It means I said yes to something that I should have said no to. So the grace of God there to teach us how to say no. Now this word teach, this is super fascinating. It comes from the Greek word, I'm certainly gonna pronounce this wrong for all the Greek speakers in the room, but paeus. comes from the Greek word paeus, which is the same word they use to illustrate this idea of training up a child. To train up a child. Now, I, I fear that sometimes, and I fear this because I know I've wrestled with this and I wrestle with this at times. I fear that sometimes we can view the idea of when we are lacking self-control or an area has control of our life and do I bring it to God, that God is gonna come down on us like a ton of bricks, that God is gonna guilt you, that God is angry at you because this area is out of control. But you know the word it uses here is that the grace of God isn't like that. 
the grace of God. Do you know how it's like to you and I in areas that are out of control and one wants to teach us how to say no? Treat this like you would training up a child to learn to say no. It means it's gracious. It means it's patient with you. It means the grace of God is kind towards us. It's loving. The grace of God is like a parent wanting to train up a child in the way they should go. He's not a commander. He's not a Caesar. He's not a dictator. God is like a parent who wants to train you up in the way you should go. So if you're being nervous to bring an area in your life that you don't have self-control in, maybe a bad habit, maybe an area that you are addicted to something, whatever it might be, and you're worried about, if I bring this to God, is he going to make me feel bad? No, 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 that's your own thoughts. (laughs) Your heavenly Father, what he wants to do, how his grace operates, it trains you and I up like a child. And there was a uh, year before last, it was like this. It might have been last year, actually. There was like a little social media phenomenon that was going around doing the rounds. And it was of parents leaving like a chocolate or some kind of lolly for their kid, their young child. And they'd leave it there and they'd set up a secret camera, you know. And they'd go, hey, don't touch this. I'll be back soon. I don't want you to touch it. And they'd leave the room and they'd leave it filming to see what their kid would do, right? And anyone see that footage? You know, it's funny footage. So Chloe and I were like, let's do it. Now, our daughter had the spirit of gluttony. Right? She just loves food, particularly foods that she should not eat. So we thought we'd test it out because this is really about testing out how good we were as parents so we could post this on social media. And uh, so we put the chocolate there and we had the little camera film. She didn't know. and like, okay, we're learning not to touch the chocolate. We left the room. Anyway, as much as she was drooling and dribbling and yeah, she didn't touch it. So we're like, we are the best parents. We have to share it so everyone can like it and make us feel good about ourselves, right? Of course, we, did we share it? We might have shared it. You might have shared it. I, I certainly did. We've laughed about it. We pat each ourselves on the back. That's good. Okay. But my point is this. The point is this. The grace of God doesn't command, doesn't guilt, doesn't even control. It teaches us. And you know what it does? It teaches us to live self-controlled. If we go to the next slide, it teaches us to live self-controlled and upright, godly lives in this present age. In this present age. Now, as much as he was writing this in the first century, and I don't have to go on too much about the dynamics and the horrors of the first century, so I'll just settle for the 21st century this present age and how the grace of God will teach you and I how to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. In the world that is, with all of its brokenness, its violence, its injustice, its deceptions, its conspiracies, its lies, its torment, its depression, its debt, its poverty, in a world that can seem out of control, the grace of God is here that offers salvation to everyone and it teaches us to live self-controlled in this present age. And you know why this is so good to know? Because often when we can view how the world is and maybe feel overwhelmed by the brokenness, and I don't know if you've ever had those moments, you're like, the world is just messed up. There's usually three common responses we can have to it. Number one, particularly when self-control is an issue, we can get caught up. We can get caught in the problem of the present age. And some of you right now have been caught in an area of temptation, an area that the Bible would call sin, missing God's mark for your life. We can get caught in that. But also beyond just being caught in some of the pressures and temptations and brokenness of the present age, 
Sometimes we can just despair at it. And maybe some of you have certainly felt this this week. You're like, what is wrong with the world? And we despair. We lose all hope. We lose all vision, all future. And then maybe you take a step beyond that, that you find yourself condemning the world that is. And we throw slurs and our anger and our frustration and we just, the world is this and leaders are that and people are this. And if this present age, as Paul wrote to Titus, if this present age is the biggest picture that has caught your attention and has caught your heart and has caught your life, it flies in the face of the message that Paul was trying to get across to this young pastor. Because you remember the opening line before he talked about this present age? He said this, and I told you to remember this verse, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation, that offers hope, that offers a way out, that offers a future, that offers a promise, that offers Jesus to all people, to all people, to the whole world. And so we get left with these two pictures. One is the pressures and torments and brokenness of this present world. And the whole way it's out of control, at least seem to be out of control. On the other end, you have the grace of God that's been offering salvation to all the world. So you've got two visions that can capture your heart. And my prayer is today that what will capture your heart and what will capture your hope and what will capture your life isn't the horrors and the sense of the world being out of control in this present age. It's this. It's the grace that is on offer to the whole planet. That beyond despair, there is hope. Beyond brokenness, there is wholeness. Beyond death, there is life. There is the grace of God that has been offering salvation to all people. The guys have jumped ahead to the last scripture, the last slides. I might as well read it. Here's what I want you to remember for you and I as we finish today. By God's grace, I can live self-controlled in a world that can seem out of control. In your life, my prayer for today, for those of you watching online, for those of you who are listening afterwards, and not just for this series, but my prayer always for you, is that you would know that there is a hope that you can put your faith in Christ on, that you can put your vision on, that would cause you to live with restraints that would unleash the God-given potential in your life, that even in a world that seems to be hurting and wild and violent and unjust and out of control, your life can tell a different story. Your life in the middle of torment, in the middle of turmoil, can be a testament to the grace of God as you and I determine to live with some measure of self-control. And so this morning, I wanna close by praying for you. And if there is an error in your life, right now, we're gonna do this right now. If you're watching along online or whenever you're listening to this, I want you to do this today. We're gonna bring that part of our life that maybe you feel has too much control. You've handed over too much control to. We're gonna bring it to God this morning and we're gonna thank God and invite God's grace into our life that He would begin to teach us how to say no and beyond that, how to live godly and upright and self-controlled lives in this present age. So I want to invite you to let me pray for you this morning. God, thanks for being patient with us. Thanks for being gracious. 
Thanks for offering us salvation, a way out. We need it. And this morning, Lord, without any pretension or wearing masks or faking it, we just want to have a moment of honesty before you. And here is a part of our life. Come on, just do it in your own heart right now. God, here is a part of my life that I have handed over too much control to, that it is out of control in my life. Here it is. God, I'm asking that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. That by your grace, you would teach us how to say no. That you would teach us how to live wisely. That you would teach us how to live self-controlled. So God, I pray for a flood of your grace over people today. I pray for those at home today, watching online. Let your grace fill their living rooms. Let your grace fill every heart here today. And for those this morning that maybe have never experienced your grace and your life, I pray that right now that they would know it. I'm believing for those who are addicted and are bound by something this morning. In Jesus' name, I thank you for setting people free this morning. Addictions broken off people's lives. Toxic thoughts that have been dominating people's lives for too long, broken off in the name of Jesus. Thank you for people walking in freedom today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.